Genesis 31, verse 1 to 24. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages... Then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by telling him he was running away, uh, sorry, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Father God, speak to us now through your word, we ask. Reveal who you are. Show us your goodness. Help us taste and see that you are good so that we may trust you. Lord, we pray this morning that as we leave this place, we leave more confident in who you are, more willing to trust you, more grateful for the work that you have done to redeem us to yourself. And Father, we ask all this in the name of our King, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. 
If God is so powerful, why didn't he stop the earthquake in Turkey and Syria? If God is so powerful, why is there still a war raging in Ukraine? If God is so powerful, why is there a famine in Africa, slavery in South Asia? If God is so powerful, why is it that we still get sick and suffer and die? Is God really powerful? Now, perhaps you've had people ask you these questions. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're wrestling with those sorts of questions yourself. Is God really powerful? And if he is, why is it that we don't seem to see him working in our world today? Well, friends, today's passage is one that teaches us about God's power and how he uses it. And it's a very long passage. We're considering all the way from verse 25 of chapter 30 to verse 55 of chapter 31. It's a very long passage, but if you've grabbed an outline, I've split it into four parts, and each of those parts show us something about how God chooses to use his power for good and for his glory. Part one, God blesses his chosen people. Part two, God calls his people home. Part three, God redeems his people out of slavery. And part four, God triumphs. We're going to consider these four parts of the Jacob story and see how God uses his power for us too. But if you've just joined us to help us catch up with where we're at in the sermon series, we've been following the story of a man named Jacob. And Jacob is just an ordinary man. In fact, he's, he's very ordinary at points. He has, uh, he's significant though. He's significant because in the Bible, God made promises to his grandfather, Abraham. Now you see, God's great plan for this world is to gather people from all over the world into his own family. He's redeeming people, rescuing people. And it's a plan that will culminate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but it's a plan that began with Abraham. God promised to grow Abraham's family into a nation and to use that nation to bring God's blessing to all the people of the world, ultimately leading to Jesus. But like the Olympic torch that gets passed down, God's promises to Abraham are passed down from generation to generation, first to Isaac, Abraham's son, and now to Jacob, his grandson. Now, where we're at in the Jacob story, he spent 14 years living with his uncle Laban and working for him. And he's working to pay off a debt that Laban sort of trapped him in as payment for his two daughters that Jacob married, one willingly and one unwillingly. Now, since then, Jacob has had a dozen kids, 11 boys and at least one girl. And now, after 14 years of hard labor, Jacob's debt is clear and he wants out. He's worked a decade and a half of his life with a dodgy boss who's tricked him, who's manipulated him, 
He's slogged it out in the sun all those years. He doesn't have a cent to show for it. Everything he's earned has gone to Laban to pay for one wife that he wanted and one wife that he didn't. And Jacob goes to his uncle. He says, send me home. Send me home in chapter 30, verse 25. Now, Laban doesn't want to let him go. And the reason that Laban doesn't want him to go is that when God promised Jacob, sorry, the reason Laban doesn't want to let Jacob go is because when God made his promises to Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob, he promised that he would bless Jacob, but also that he would make Jacob a blessing to others. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. Now, back in chapter 27, when God appeared to Jacob in the vision of the stairway that led from heaven, God said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. That's a huge claim that God has promised to Jacob. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. That's the same thing that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac. He blessed them, but he, he blessed them so that his blessing would spread to others. And that's been great for Laban. <laughs> Because Laban has experienced this firsthand. With Jacob around, Laban has become rich. His flocks have grown huge. His herds have multiplied. And he knows it's because God is with Jacob. He says so in verse 27. Jacob says, I want to go home. And he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And so Laban is trying to convince Jacob to stay. He says, name your wages, I'll pay it, whatever you want. Jacob doesn't want the money, he wants to go home. And so Laban tries again, this time he kind of offers just to give him something. He says, everyone's got a price, what's your price? I want you here. Eventually Jacob caves and he says, don't give me anything. Instead, I want you to do this one thing for me. And then what follows is possibly the weirdest little episode in the book of Genesis. Jacob makes a deal with his uncle. It goes like this. I'll keep working for you if you let me keep any of your sheep and goats that are spotted or speckled or striped. He says, give me the, the odd bunch fruit. Give me the factory seconds. I'll take the rejects, the ones with cosmetic dam damage. Let them be my wages. That's the deal that Jacob makes with Laban and Laban agrees. But then, if you look in your Bibles in verse 34, just after signing the contract, Laban pulls out another classic Laban move because he goes through his flock, he pulls out all the spotted, the speckled and striped animals, and then he sends them on a three-day journey to the care of his sons. Basically, what Laban does is he takes 
the thing that he's just agreed to pay to Jacob and he steals it. He takes it away. He, he makes sure that Jacob cannot get his hands on it. Jacob has been tricked once again and you would think he would be mad, but instead he goes off and he continues looking after Laban's flocks. But he does something strange, something confusing, something that Bible scholars have tried to work out for years and just don't really understand. It could be a superstition, it could be an old shepherding myth, but Jacob gets some branches, he puts them in the water troughs of the animals, and somehow this causes the unspotted sheep and the unstriped lamb... uh, the unspotted sheep and the unstriped goats, to have spotted lambs and striped kids. It's, I I don't understand it. I don't know how it works. But using this method, over the next six years, Jacob manages to grow very, very rich at the expense of his uncle. Verse 43 says he became exceedingly prosperous. Now, He could spend a lifetime trying to understand the impact on a young sheep's coat when the sap of the poplar tree is ingested by the mother in mating season. That sounds like a fascinating PhD. But doing that would mean we miss the point. Because the text actually tells us exactly how Jacob's plan worked. It gives us the secret ingredient. It's God. And that's exactly what Jacob says in chapter 31, verse 9, just over the page. He says to his wives, it wasn't my unique knowledge of selective breeding, it's not my skills as a shepherd, it was God. God has taken away Laban's livestock and given them to me. Because God is the God who blesses his chosen children. And he works through ordinary means and he works through extraordinary means to do that. That's part one. God blesses his children. In part two, things start to heat up between Laban and Jacob. Understandably, Laban isn't too thrilled about watching all his flocks go into Jacob's possession, and neither are his sons, because they're watching their inheritance just vanish. So just as Jacob starts to worry, he starts to feel a little bit anxious, he starts to notice the the ice tension between him and his uncle... God speaks to him. Chapter 31, verse 3. Sorry, I should have had these up. We're here. Chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. I will be with you. God sees Jacob's struggle. He knows the ordeal that he's been through and is continuing to go through. And so he calls Jacob home. Now, at one level, this is just God sort of giving permission for Jacob to leave and promising to be with him and protect him as he does. That's, that's a kind word from God. But it's actually even more than that because the God who has already blessed Jacob in many ways is now saying, come back to my place. Come back to the land, the land I promised to give you, the land I promised to bless you in. 
You see, for Jacob, this is sort of like the invitation to come to your parents' house for dinner when you first move out of home. You remember what that was like? You go get your first job, maybe you've gone off to uni to study, you've been living in squalor with housemates, and then mum says, why don't you come around for dinner tonight? And mum cooks the food that you love. Dad does the dishes. Mum even, you know, washes the three baskets of dirty washing that you brought with you. It's beautiful. Home is not just a building, it's where everything is right. This is the invitation that Jacob receives from God. Come home, come to me, come to the land where I will bless you. And so Jacob does. He calls his wives in. They have an emergency family meeting out in the field. They all decide that their future is with God, not with Laban. And so they decide to leave, to go to the promised land, the land of Canaan. This brings us to part three, where Jacob and his family experience what looks very much like a mini exodus. You'll notice this as you read through this story. It looks a lot like Exodus. At this point, the escape of God's people from slavery in Egypt is still in the far distant future. But here in Genesis 31, Jacob and his own little family have an escape from slavery. There's quite a few parallels. Just like the Israelites in Egypt, Jacob has been enslaved. He's been working for 14 years without a cent to show for it. Just like Pharaoh, Laban doesn't want to let Jacob go because of the financial impact it will have on him. Just as God allowed the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians on their way out, well, Jacob plunders Laban. And just as the Israelites were pursued by Pharaoh and his army, after hearing of Jacob's secret escape, Laban musters an army of relatives and begins the hunt for Jacob and his family. And just like he did with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, God shows Laban who's boss. Which leads us to part four, God's triumph. I forgot that I'm doing this. There we go. Laban comes chasing after Jacob. And he's got a long list of grievances against Jacob. He says, you've taken my daughters away like captives. You've stolen my grandchildren. You've deceived me by not telling me you were leaving. And what's more, you've even stolen my household gods. Laban says to Jacob, how could you do this to me? Now, can you believe that? This is the guy who played wife swap at the expense of both Jacob and his own daughter, and he's claiming the moral high ground. How could you do this to me? Seriously. Now, Jacob is scared. That's what he says in verse 31. He says, the reason I ran away was because I was afraid. I was worried about that you would take my, your daughters away from me. He's scared. And Laban says he, he wants to hurt him. He threatens Jacob in verse 29 saying, I've got the power to hurt you, but there is a problem. He doesn't. He may have a bigger army, 
He's fighting against someone far more powerful, and he knows it. Because the God who caused Laban to become rich through Jacob and then caused Laban to become poor through Jacob is also the God who appeared to Laban in a dream and said, don't you dare lay a hand on my child. We see it in verse 24. God appears to Laban in a dream and he says, be careful that you don't even say anything that might hurt Jacob. You see, by God's powerful word, Laban is powerless. He has been outfeared by the God that Jacob describes in verse 42 as the fear of Isaac, the dreaded one of Isaac, the God who has triumphed over Laban by bringing Jacob safely out from slavery. God triumphs over Laban, but as he does that, he also makes a mockery of Laban's gods. You see, back in verse 19, we saw that Rachel had stolen some of her father's household gods on her way out. Now, why, we did that, why she did that, we don't know. She's stolen some of her father's gods. Maybe it was just a way of getting even with him taking something that he thought was precious. Maybe she actually trusted in these gods. We don't know. But Laban is mad and he accuses Jacob of stealing them. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has stolen them and so he confidently tells Laban, we don't have your idols and if you find them, you can kill whoever took them. Now, just imagine how Rachel's feeling at that point. Well, Laban begins searching. He searches Jacob's tent, nothing. He searches Leah's tent, nothing. He searches the tents of the slave girls, still nothing, but he's determined. He wants these household gods back. And so in verse 34, he enters Rachel's tent. Have a look at verse 34. It says, now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched, but could not find the household gods. You see, the gods that Laban trusts in are are household gods. They're, They're idols. They are gods that can be possessed and stolen They don't have power. What kind of power do you have if someone can just pick you up and take you away and render you powerless? That's not power. They can be thrown in a bag. They can be put in a saddle and sat on. And the gods that Laban worships end up on a saddle with a woman who claims to be menstruating on top of them. In light of God's glory, Laban's household gods are about as useful and as glorious as a used sanitary pad. Now, it's actually meant to be funny. God is making a mockery of these things that Laban is trusting in. Laban comes looking like he's powerful, looking like he's come to hurt Jacob, and God just says, you got nothing. He triumphs over Laban, he makes a mockery of his idols... But in that, it's it's funny, but there's a word of caution for us. 
Because we, like Laban, are often tempted to put our trust in things which can be possessed and stolen, things with no power, things that are ultimately useless. And it's worth us asking the question, is our God the fearful God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, or are we worshipping and trusting in impotent idols? The things our culture loves to trust in, like wealth and popularity and achievement. If it can be possessed, stolen, sat on, it's probably not going to have much power to help you. These are the four parts of our story. Jacob's God is the one who blesses his chosen people. He calls his children home. He redeems his people out of slavery. And ultimately, he triumphs over anyone who opposes him. That's the way God works in and through Jacob in Genesis 31. But friends, it's the way that God continues to work in and through us today. Firstly, God is the God who blesses his chosen people. And just as he blessed Jacob with material wealth and used Jacob to be a blessing to all those around him, God has blessed his chosen people in Christ. Now, God doesn't bless us with material wealth. He doesn't promise us that. He does promise us every spiritual blessing. And and as God has blessed you, He also uses you to be a spiritual blessing to those around you. Now, it's no coincidence that the kind of character and behaviour that we see commended for us in the New Testament corresponds exactly with the kind of character and behaviour that we have experienced from Christ himself. See, God wants us to bless others in the way that we have been blessed. Jesus demonstrates his love for us by sacrificing himself in our place and Christ's love compels us to love others. Jesus is outrageously merciful to us, forgiving us for our many wrongs and so... As people who have been shown mercy, we are empowered, enabled to show that same forgiveness to others. As Jesus gives us new life through the good news of his death and resurrection for our sins, he uses us to share that good news as we go about making disciples of all nations. Friends, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing And as those who have been blessed, we are used by God to spread that blessing to others. Now, we need to hear that. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like what I have to share is seen as a blessing by my neighbours. Sometimes it feels more like I'm carrying around an infectious disease rather than a message of life and hope. I go and say, hey, do you want to hear some good news? And they're like, whoa, get that thing away from me. I don't want it. Now, God doesn't promise us that we will be warmly received by everyone. 
He doesn't promise us that everyone will want the blessings that we have to give. His own son came to bless all the nations of the world. He got killed for it. People will reject us. But at the same time, the way that God has always worked is to use his people to be the ministers of his blessing to a world that so desperately needs to receive it. Friends, God has blessed you and he's blessed you in part so that you can be a blessing to others in a whole wide variety of ways. Secondly, God is the God who calls his children out of slavery and brings them safely home. Just as he rescued Jacob from Laban and brought him home to the land of promise, God calls us. He calls us out of slavery to sin and into our forever home. The thing for us to see is that that's not a call that we only respond to once. See, quite often we as Christians talk a lot about conversion, a moment in time in which God grabbed us and you made that decision to follow Jesus. And look, that's great. I'm all in favour of conversion. I want us to pray for conversions. I want us to see conversions. I want us to celebrate conversions. But while conversions happen in a moment, they continue for a lifetime. You see, we are all on a journey home, but we're not there yet. We haven't arrived And so today, whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember or whether you want to make that decision to receive Jesus for the very first time today, I actually want us all to be making the same response to this passage. I want us all to choose to put your trust in and keep your trust in the one who calls you home out of slavery into his presence. God blesses his chosen people. He calls his children home as he redeems them out of slavery. But finally, our God is the God who will triumph over all those who oppose him. In a culture where God is mocked, where God's ways are considered dangerous and outdated, It's easy for us to think that God is not powerful. In a world where there is so much pain and suffering, it is easy for us to think that God is not working. But friends, Genesis 31 shows us a God who works powerfully. A God who's able to rescue his people. A God who calls them home. A God who protects them along the way. A God who will let nothing and no one get in the way of his plan. Now, God will still appear weak to us. In fact, the, the very thing that brought about his victory, the cross, appears completely weak. It appears powerless. But friends, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong to show that the all-surpassing power comes from him. Friends, the way that God has shown his power to you most clearly 
is not through bringing an end to pain and suffering in this world, in our day. The way that he's shown his power for you most clearly is through an act of complete weakness, an apparently powerless act, through sending his son to hang and die on a cross to redeem you. Friends, that is God's victory. That is our confidence that God will bring us home. He will claim victory in the end. He will defeat sin. He will defeat death. He will defeat every power in our world that would try to overcome him. God will win. And that's our hope. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you this morning that you are a powerful God, that you use that power to bless your people, to use your people to be a blessing to others. We thank you that you use that power to call us home, to redeem us out of slavery to sin. We thank you that you use that power to guarantee our arrival in your presence. Lord, it's easy for us to doubt your power, to think that you have stopped working in this world. It's easy for us to think that evil will win. Lord, give us confidence in your power as we experience your blessing, as you use us to bless others, as you call us home and we experience your protection. But Lord, give us confidence in your power because we saw your son hanging on a cross in our place and then rising again to defeat sin and death. Lord, give us confidence that you will ultimately win and that we will get to rejoice and share in your victory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.